Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here has been a photographer. His works are in exhibit uh, currently at the Paul Anglum Gallery here in uh, San Francisco and here at the De Young Museum. He is a, a photographer who's had exhibitions throughout the world. He's also a performer. He portrayed the role of a goon in a movie with James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause. He directed Easy Rider, one of the great Hallmark uh, movies of uh, this part of the, uh, the century. And he's been in films ranging from Blue Velvet to the Mario Brothers to Carried Away and Basquiat. Will you please welcome one of the, uh, the fine actors and directors of our time, Dennis Hopper. So you go out this uh, auditorium and down the, the hall, take a left and go straight through the Asian Art Museum and into the De Young and then take a right and right there in a corner with uh, Wallace Berman and Ed Keenholz, there's a display of photographs taken by, uh, by you. One of my favorites is one that makes use of, of wordplay and puns and it's a picture that looks like it's taken at a junction somewhere approaching Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles and there's two giant standard oil station, gasoline station signs and you can see the car behind you in the rearview mirror, and also through the windscreen looking ahead, is uh, a billboard right above the two standard signs that has a picture of a housewife and the, the slogan that goes, uh, gas, in, gas is important in every equally balanced powered home. Smart women cook with gas. In every balanced power home. Thank you. Yeah, there it is. And the, and the photograph you've entitled Double Standard. Right. Yeah, that, that was, uh, it's also uh, Route 66, if you notice. Yeah, that was um, uh, Ed Roche did a bunch of standard station paintings later. I took that in 1961, and then Ed used that for his first show at the Ferris Gallery, and uh, announcement for that show. The Ferris Gallery was one of the big centers of the, the so-called beat action in, in Los Angeles, um, that and, and Wallace Berman, a, a, a friend of yours. Uh, for yourself, you were acting at the time, but also were you sort of ambivalent? You wanted to do photography, you wanted to do art. How did you get drawn into that world? Well, let me start with how I became a beatnik, or whatever this beatnik uh, thing that I became was, <clears throat> or something like that. Uh, by the time I heard of Ginsburg and Kerouac, I was already living a lifestyle that it was associated to being a beatnik. Uh, and that had, uh, that had come out of uh, Marlon Brando, basically. And uh, I went under contract to Warner Brothers in uh, January, um, uh, January 7th, 1955. That was the year that we did Rebel Without a Cause. And then later in 56, we did Giant, and then Dean died. So during that period of time, uh, I, uh, I was searching for, I was a very serious actor. You know, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be a poet. I was on fire, you know, and uh, so was Dean. And, and also, we were fighting against uh, an establishment that um, 
that were wearing uh, tuxedos and riding in Rolls Royces and uh, uh, you couldn't, on Sunset Strip, you couldn't go into a restaurant unless you had on a, a jacket and tie at that time. So uh, between 1955 and 1958, the whole strip changed. A man by the name of Benny Shapiro uh, came along and uh, they started a, a coffee house, started the Unicorn, uh, and uh, it's the first time I heard Howl there. Uh, and, uh, but we were already wearing Levi's uh, and uh, T-shirts. It just sounds like a dress show, but uh, it, was very, it, was a, it was an important moment to show our rebellion against an establishment that wasn't thinking beyond Eisenhower and the good life, which was cool, which was all cool, but we wanted to be artists. And, and so I ran into Wallace Berman who, who, uh, and George Herms and Bruce Connor, but basically, uh, Berman, uh, art is God, art is love, you know, uh, that, uh, that stuck with me, you know, and uh, uh, I ran into to, to Herms, uh, Herms and uh, Berman at a place called Stone Brothers Printing, which they had with a man by the name of Walter Hobbs, and Walter Hobbs had been involved in Pacific Jazz, and then later became uh, he and Keenholz formed, with Berman, formed the Ferris Gallery, which is the first place Andy Warhol was shown later in, in 63. Uh, Hops was the first, gave Marcel Duchamp his first retrospective in 1963 at the Pasadena Museum, which brought all the artists in, uh, uh, brought in uh, Jasper Johns and uh, uh, Rauschenberg and Oldenburg and uh, uh, Lichtenstein and uh, Andy Warhol. And, and uh, there was in the, the West Coast artists, uh, George Herms and Wallace Berman and, and Keenholz and Bruce Connor. Um, and then the poetry, the poetry was a whole nother world of Michael McClure and, and Diane uh, uh, De Palma. I, I, I met uh, Diane De Prima. I met her at, uh, at Wallace Berman's probably in 55 or 56. And then Mort Saul was around because Benny Shapiro had the Renaissance Club and, and uh, and Mort played there, and Lenny Bruce, and, and all the jazz, Miles Davis, and Thelonious Monk, and, and um, I remember Benny had me take uh, Monk to the, uh, Monk, uh, Monk couldn't play at, at Shapiro's club, the Renaissance, because uh, uh, the, the police chief at that time was named Parker, and Parker, uh, uh, because of prior drug convictions, wouldn't allow him to play. So Benny said, you go pick up, uh, Go pick up Monk. He's down. Uh, he's down in Watson. He's in this old Victorian house of his doctor down there, and, and make sure that he gets to the airport and gets on the airplane because he loves to go and miss airplanes and watch the people at the airport. So, like, get him on the plane. You know, we got people meeting him. So I arrive down in Watson. I go in this Victorian house and I say, "Is Monk ready?" And they said, "No, no, he's upstairs." So I come upstairs and he's in bed in his pajamas. He's got pills everywhere. He's stoned out of his mind, and he says to me, "Dennis." How can a man with the name of Parker be down on jazz? <laughs> so um, we missed the airplane. <laughs> but anyway. So you guys got up on jazz, then? Huh? We got up on yeah. jazz. But, like, you know, it was a time that, uh, it was a time of, uh, of real love and real wonderful creative experiences. Uh, um, uh, David Melser and uh, uh, well, just this whole this whole group of people at that time. Uh, there was a there was a story uh, that you were so interested in finding out. Say the the creative art of acting and trying to figure out how James Dean did what he did. 
that you actually got into some sort of struggle with him at one time to try and get it out of him, get the secret out of him. Yeah, I was, yeah. And the, the chicky run in Rebel Without a Cause, uh, uh, I grabbed him and threw him in a car and said, I don't know what you're doing, but I've got to find out because until I saw you, I thought I was the best actor around. <laughs> but you're doing things I don't really understand. And basically what he was doing was improvising and he was, um, he was doing things, not showing them, which is what he explained to me. And I said, doing things and not showing them, what do you mean? He said, if you're smoking a cigarette, smoke the cigarette. If you're drinking the drink, drink the drink, you know? Um, don't act it, you know? And these will be very difficult at first because you get on a stage, suddenly you think, I'm gonna drink this coffee, and suddenly you have, but you know, I mean, just do it. Um, and uh, it was like, it's the same thing that David talked about. I mean, we were improvising, we were, we were like, uh, we were interpreting things, but then we were t doing things that weren't written on the page. Um, um, that, uh, I mean, for example, in Rebel Without a Cause, there's, there's a scene where he's drunk and he's playing with the monkey in the street. All that came out of his, his improv. And, and, uh, and then uh, uh, later when he's in the police station and the people are, are uh, uh, the police are searching him, he gets tickled and he starts laughing. None of that's on the page. Or making the siren sounds, you know, uh, the wailing of the, of, of the uh, sirens and so on. These things are things that he brought and he created. Or later in Giant, when you see him marking off the land or the way he lifts himself up on the wind, windmill or, or uh, you know, the way he does that sort of, that strange gesture. I can't, this is radio, I know, but where he, how would you describe that? <laughs> That's a hard one to describe, isn't it? Yeah, kind of a, a backward inverted wave. Yeah, that he used in Giant. But anyway, these were things that, uh, that later I, I, I studied with Strasberg, and this was method acting, and it was like, you know, it was freeing your mind of all, all um, uh, preconceived ideas and leaving yourself open to a new experience and leaving yourself up to moment-to-moment -moment reality. Was this, was this something you, you brought to your photography? What, what kind of camera did you take around? Was it, uh, uh, what kind of images did you look for and, and want to frame in your mind? Well, I'd started out uh, uh, in, in San Diego in 51, I started doing uh, walls. I started painting walls. And then later in the, in, uh, I was I st about 54, 55, I was starting to take photographs of walls. Now, at that time, I was being photographed so much that uh, 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 taking photographs of people I thought was uh, an intrusion. So I started, uh, I, I was always a visual person. I wasn't a reader. Uh, I, uh, I would listen and uh, I would look, but I, I really believed that if you saw, if you used your eyes, that all the secret wonders of the world would be revealed to you and that really all you needed to do was uh, use your eyes and that everything would be uh, understood. So uh, that's something that I followed at that time. And generally in Los Angeles, because I don't find the architecture interesting, uh, I was drawn to the walls and to the walls. And also I was drawn to like, because I, I, I painted and I, I wanted to be a painter and I dreamed of painting. I, 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 I didn't have any depth of field in my photograph. I wanted to flatten them out and use them as a painting surface. So I shot flat on walls and flat on things. And that, uh, that has continued to this day. And that clearly also affects your choices when you direct uh, moving pictures. Well, uh, 
I don't crop my photographs, uh, but yeah, but then I went through a Cartier-Bresson period of time too, where I, you know, it was to catch the decisive moment, the moment you know, that you can only catch in that still moment. So that was a later thing when I got to New York and was studying with Strasbourg. And, but I, I was drawn to Harry Callahan and Siskine, you know, uh, Siskin, who uh, basically were trying to do the same things, or were doing the same things. And then, uh, and then Irving Blum and uh, Hops, uh, Walter Hops, got me started taking photographs of the artists, uh, and the artists wanted to be photographed, where the actors that I knew, I didn't want to bother them, but the artists needed, uh, needed their uh, picture taken for their announcement or whatever, and so I, I photographed all the early, you know, I photographed Andy Warhol uh, before he had a show in Reichenberg and Jasper Johns and Oldenburg and Rosenquist. I, I, I photographed almost all the art, 20, I have about 23 really, that became really prominent uh, artists of, of the period that I photographed either just having their first shows, some before they ever had shows. And uh, did, did you try to get them to look as flat as possible, like on a painting? <laughs> no, I, I really tried to, tried to find an environment that would like have something to do with their work or my feeling about them. Um, so uh, sometimes that dealt with things that were written on the wall, like for example, Wally, uh, Wally Berman, uh, um, he's on his motorcycle and he has the Kabbalah, uh, the first letter of the Kabbalah, man, on which he signed all of his pieces on his helmet. And, uh, uh, but behind on the window, uh, down on Fairfax where we shot the picture, it says, blow, yeah? And uh, it just had a speedy thing to it, and it was nice. <laughs> you've, uh, you've liked motorcycles a lot in your life. I never really cared very much for motorcycles. I always said they were really dangerous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Fonda liked motorcycles a lot, yeah. but, um, uh, but uh, you know, it's sort of like horses. Um, I rode a lot of horses, but I never really cared for them. Uh, they like you? And that was work-related. Yeah. <laughs> work-related. But, uh, yeah. The, uh, there's a, a current film out, Basquiat, about Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, a Haitian artist in New York in his life. You play Bruno, the art dealer in there, and there are some wonderful scenes with you opposite uh, uh, David Bowie as, as Andy Warhol. This must have been sort of an odd sort of uh, reframing of your own experience to be playing opposite a character, playing somebody you actually knew and worked with as a friend in life. Yeah, it was bizarre. <laughs> also, I know David really well. I mean, you know, also, it's funny. Um, what, what? Well, he was wearing Andy's real wig. That was Andy's real wig in the yeah. movie. And, um, yeah, it was, it was strange. <laughs> it was strange. You know, what's important about Basquiat to me is in 100 years of filmmaking and American filmmaking, this is the first feature film, not documentary, first feature film ever made about an American artist. Now, that's, uh, that's saying a lot about a lot of things, isn't it? Or very little about a lot of things. Um, so, like, you know, the importance of Julian Schnabel making this movie to me, uh, uh, whether people have criticism of, well, it's not really about Jean-Michel, it's, really it's really about Julian, Let's put it on another level. It's really about Julian's acquaintance, Jean-Michel Basquiat, you know? And it's about Andy Warhol, but it's about a time, a period of time. It's a beautiful linear poem, in my, my opinion, and it, and it shows you a world that uh, people just don't, have never had access to. And I think Julian did a great, great job on this movie. This was, uh, in part, the world of art collectors, art dealing, wheeling, dealing. Uh, 
I mean, I suppose that if, if any of these items that was uh, in, the, in the beat exhibit here was put up for sale, it would fetch very handsome uh, prices. I mean, the world, the psychology of collecting uh, and of wanting to keep something is, is quite different from the act of, of creating it. And that uh, contempt, that divisiveness at Fisher certainly comes across in that movie, but also must have come across in your own life because you both collect and create. Yeah, and also I want to I want to just say something. You know, I mean, Wallace Berman and Ed Keenholz and George Herms and the artists that I was associated, uh, 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 Bruce Connor and so on, they didn't uh, they didn't make this art uh, uh, as some sort of frizz, frizz uh, 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 what's the word I'm using? Uh, frivolous act. I mean, this was these were dedicated artists, are dedicated artists who had a knowledge of art and knew uh, exactly what they were doing enough to open themselves up to the cosmos and allow all preconceived ideas to go away and real energy and real creative things uh, out of the discards of their life and out of the, the sanity and the pureness of their life to create something. So it wasn't just uh, this show I mean, I hear sort of somewhere that it's sort of a, a strange kind of offbeat thing. But Jackson Pollock is in this show. These are people who were artists who were dedicated to art, not just uh, as a casual, casual thing. And I just want to throw that out. The, uh, some of your, your current uh, photography is also these, these very you know, tight close-ups of, of, of walls, of, of peeling paint, uh, little bits of, of graffiti. Um, when uh, do you do your own printing of these? Of these? They're, they're like what uh, six by four foot color prints. No, I don't do the printing. Um, I've never ever been interested in printing. I, I shoot full frame because uh, I wanted to direct film, and you can't crop photographs in film. And also, I felt very pure about this. Uh, I'm very much. Uh, 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 I feel very strongly about Duchamp and the idea that. The artist of the future, as Deschamps said, would not necessarily paint, but he would simply point his finger and say it was art and it would be art. And uh, there's no better way to do that than with a camera, perhaps. Um, um, I say perhaps because I really don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but when, when, when you, when you uh, direct the uh, a motion picture camera to go there, I mean, do you say that's art or is that commerce in that shot? Or does that even enter your mind as you're working as a director? Well, art uh, becomes sort of a precious, uh, rarefied air kind of word. Art, is it art? I just want to know if it'll work, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> uh, I just try to visualize what it'll work and try to tell a story. That's a much different thing. Uh, uh, being a director is an interpretive act. Uh, Wallace Berman creating something in a one-on-one, -on -one, or George Herms or Bruce Connor uh, is a very different kind. It's a one-on-one -on -one act, whereas a lot of directing a movie is floor managing, and also it's working with actors, so it's and telling a story. So it's a much different, uh, different apparatus. One of your recent films you've described as as the the role that you've you've enjoyed the most. You play a school teacher in the Midwest uh, who has a limp, um, and is the romantic lead. Uh, with it, and it's a romantic lead with with glasses and with a limp and kind of bad clothes, but there's clearly a power and passion there. What uh, uh, Mort Saul was talking about actors wanting to to find out whether they get the girl in the end of the movie. Um, uh, for you, what was critical in that role? 
Well, just for one second to, to go off a minute, Mort Saul wrote, uh, I did a movie called Flashback with uh, Kiefer Sutherland, and uh, um, where I've sort of played Abby Hoffman type, and uh, Mort did, uh, Marvin Worth, who produced it, got Mort Saul to uh, write some of my speeches, uh, which, uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> now, where were we? Oh, get the girl, yeah, hmm, boy. No, but I was getting more to, more, more to the point was, was if, if it was your, the role that you've, you've enjoyed most, um, what was it that, that made it so? What was it in part of that creative process for you? Were you able to finally you know, you know, drink that cup of coffee? Well, it, it, it's, it was the writing. I mean, Jim Harrison's novel, Farmer, and, and the screenplay uh, was a wonderful thing to act. Also, the uh, ensemble of players. I mean, Amy Irving was just fantastic. Uh, Amy Locaine, Hal Holbrook, uh, Gary Busey, uh, Julie Harris, who played with James Dean in, in uh, uh, East of Eden, played my mother. And uh, it's just um, a wonderful ensemble. Uh, Declan Quinn, who... Uh, 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 was a cinematographer, Aidan Quinn's brother, who uh, uh, did uh, uh, leaving, uh, leaving Las Vegas. Uh, so um, it was a great uh, uh, creative uh, thing. It, j it just came off well, let's put it that way. And uh, basically because of the script and what it had to say, it's a very adult, uh, rather than killing people, it's an adult way about uh, uh, sexual permissiveness. You know, sexual stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Cut, next take here. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, we, uh, we look forward after the show. In a few minutes, everyone will have a chance to go in and, and see your work. When they see your work there, what uh, uh, they'll react any way they want to, I know. But how would you like them to react when they see your work in that, in that wall? Well, you know, this show is like a footnote of, of something that's very important because this bridges... Uh, this starts with ab abstract expressionism, the first time that America ever had an art form, uh, 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 a visual art form. We always emulated the Europeans. So when, when Jackson Pollock uh, took the canvas off the floor, uh, off the easel and put it on the floor and started walking around it and using gravity to paint with and the paint started going off into the galaxies or whatever and uh, there, was, there was action painting was created and Franz Klein and, and de Kooning and... Uh, Gottlieb and uh, Motherwell and all the people that were involved in the abstract expressionist movement, uh, Franz Klein. Uh, this was a big breakthrough. And this show from 1950 includes that and then goes into, I'm only talking about the visual area because there's also the literary area here that's really, really important, uh, major importance. But the visual thing that happened uh, from abstract expressionism and then into Wallace Berman and the, the assemblage artists of California, George Herms and, and Bruce Connor uh, and Keenholz, uh, uh, you see a, a new way of looking at the world. And this bridged and allowed for the hippie movement and the love generation and uh, uh, the things that happened after 1965, the summer of love in 1967. These were the things that allowed that to happen. And... Uh, uh, so it's a, it's, it's a bridge. It's a bridge to pop art. It's a bridge to being able to go back and face the commercial image and show the soup can and the Coca-Cola bottle and the billboard and what really America was really about. It allowed that to happen. And if you go inside and see one of my things in there, you'll see that in 1963, there's a little postcard in the Wallace Berman area. 
And it, it's a, it's a, uh, I sent out, my wife and I at that time, Brooke Hayward, sent out a uh, announcement uh, to have a, for Andy Warhol's first show in 1963 at the Ferris Gallery of his soup cans. And uh, there was going to be a party for him. And Wallace cuts it out and sends it back. Well, WB accepts this uh, invitation to this party in 1963. But this is the marriage of all that and what will go, come and uh, happen later. And uh, these are brave souls. So my, my photography is just a little, a little glimpse. There's a lot more behind that. But there's a lot more behind all the work here. And one must sort of, I, I think of it, that's why I think of it as a footnote. It's a very important time. And uh, hopefully we will see this again in other forms. And uh, uh, I'm sorry for uh, not mentioning all the literary people that are involved in this show because it's, that's terribly important too, and the musicians. That's and, right, David and, David and, and Diane take care of that. Well, no, but I'm yeah. saying, you know, I mean, uh, it was all a big family, and uh, uh, thank God for the poetry readings, and thank God for the jazz, and thank God for the family, because it was a family, and is a family, and it was a pleasure to be part of it. Dennis Hopper, thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. <laughs> this is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.